Welcome to Zero Five O. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. With today's guest on Zero Five O, we're going to delve into some of the least known and perhaps hardest to understand ecosystem services or welfare benefits of nature. Merlin Hambry Tennyson has converted Kabila, an upland hill farm on Bodmin Moor, into a place where we can connect with the restorative power of nature. Kabila is also a research centre where scientists are aiming to learn more about the role of ancient oak forest, how beavers can prevent flooding, and the wonderful world of mycelium. Welcome to Zero Five O, Merlin. Thank you, Bruce. I'm very, very happy and honoured to be here. It's it's great to be here. So we've had a we've had a, a reschedule due to the massive storm that came in and, and blew you away. So thank you for being here. I know you're uh, knee deep in uh, rebuilding the farm. So thanks for taking the time to join us on Zero Five O. My pleasure. We're quite exposed up here. So when a storm comes in, it hits us hard. Brilliant. So it's quite an unusual name, Kabila. Is it a Cornish name? Where does it, what does it mean something? And is that am I am I right in saying calling it Kabila Farm, or should it just be Kabila alone? No, you're well. Either works, but you're uh, you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's an ancient Cornish word. It means woolen cloak. So when um, when William the Conqueror took over the UK, as he did quite famously about a thousand years ago, and did his big census in 1086, uh, he gave Cornwall to his brother Robert de Mortain, who became the first. Sort of de facto uh, Duke of Cornwall. It wasn't actually made a dukedom until um, about 1380, uh, uh, but it, 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 he became the first Duke of Cornwall. As part of the census, they found I think there were about 160 manor farms across um, across Cornwall. Each had a certain ancient duty that they had to carry out to the person who ruled Cornwall that became the Duke. And Kabila, the the land of the woolen cloak. What we had to do was whenever the Duke crossed from England into Cornwall, because there's any Cornish person will tell you we are not in England here. Uh, the, <laughs> the steward of Kabila would take their their best sheep and shear it and make a woolen cloak out of the the wool and then present it to the Duke when they cross the border from England into Cornwall to keep them warm and dry from the the Atlantic squalls, just like Storm Eunice that occasionally uh, rumble in here from the Atlantic. And, and it's something which I, I'd learned about growing up here. But when my wife and I started to build the business, we uh, we started to talk about actually the meaning of Kabila, and it really resonated with us because now that we welcome people here to come and heal with the restorative power of nature, we want them to feel that same sense of of uh, warmth and safety when they're staying at Kabila that the woolen cloak was originally designed to to give to the Duke. Amazing, and sort of been wrapped in nature the minute you arrive. That's right. Were the cloaks becoming particularly decorative or was it very much a functional piece of clothing that was uh, handed out on arrival? Well, I'll confess, I, I, I mean, it, it hasn't, it's not a tradition that has been enacted for a couple of hundred years. And I fully intend to begin it with, uh, you know, now that, now that I'm behind the reins, and especially uh, as and when we do get a new Duke uh, at the helm as well. So it's something that I'm going to start up again. And we might make them quite decorative, but I, I imagine they were pretty basic uh, garments back in the day. Brilliant. And, and, and presumably a culture of knitting there on board men. I would presume so. Again, it's uh, it's uh, no, no, definitely not my skill set. But you need uh, to get your knitting needles out. Well, I, I'm from Wensidale originally, and and I learned quite recently that the um, folk of Wensidale they grew lots of sheep, but they're also um, keen knitters, and everywhere they walk, they used to be knitting at the same time. So 
there you go. You learn things. Not just famous for Wallace and Gromit and cheese, it turns yes. out. I, was, I wasn't going to mention it. <laughs> so what's going on at Kabila other than giving people very nice, warm, organic woolen cloaks on arrival? What have you created there? Well, as you mentioned at the start, Bruce, we've... Um, it's a traditional upland hill farm, which has about 100 acres of temperate rainforest at the heart of it, which is one of the um, the rarest environments now in Europe. You know, when, when I tell people that we have a rainforest here, they, they often look at me like I'm completely mad because everyone thinks rainforests belong in the Amazon and, and Malaysia and Indonesia and places like that. And we've we all grow up learning about tropical rainforests and how important they are. And of course, they are. They're the lungs of the planet. But they are, um, there is still about 50% of tropical rainforests left. Uh, and, and so it is, it is still, whilst heavily endangered, we do have a lot of it remaining. Whereas temperate rainforest, we've cut down about 98%. And so it's become a much rarer habitat. And the, the slice that we have here at Kabila is, is incredibly special and, uh, and very rich in terms of its biodiversity and its ecosystem services. So what Lizzie and I have built at Kabila is, is a business with um, three fundamental pillars, really. The first is restoration, uh, and, and that's how we're trying to look at a new way of farming for the future. As Britain leaves the European Union or has left the European Union, the common agricultural policy, which has really propped up British farming, especially on the uplands, um, is changing and will be completely gone by 2026. So at the moment, upland hill farmers on Bobbinmore and Dartmoor take between 85 and 92 percent of their annual income from European handouts, from European subsidies. All of this money will be gone in the next four or five years and we're going to have to look to a new way of managing the land one that doesn't damage the land but restores it and, and, and brings back that health and vitality and that's a fundamental part of what the business here is doing um, the central pillar is our retreats side of things which you again alluded to at the start and and that's really important that's where we we uh, we have a, a wellness retreat here where we're welcoming people throughout the year to come and um, forest bathe do yoga yep. um, shinrin yoku wim hof sound bars yeah. a wonderful place for people from businesses or individuals to come and school groups as well to come and learn about nature and how special it is and then the third pillar is our research arm where we're working with five different universities uh, to look at actually quantifying and and establishing firstly the benefits of a restoration program like this but also the the, the sort of scientific benefit that really underpins some of these ecotherapy practices which is some of them so new in terms of the way we talk about them in the vernacular. Yeah. But actually, it's the way that we've all, all of us have always enjoyed spending time in nature more than we enjoy spending time in an urban environment. And if we can take people into extreme nature and actually gather the data behind what is so good about it, then um, then we can really start to change, change policy and, and change direction in that way as well. And I want to explore these three pillars. Going back to rainforest, have you got rainforest in Cornwall because it rains all the time? Is that the <laughs> definition of, <laughs> is that how we're defining rainforest? No, so temperate rainforest or Atlantic rainforest has a, a number of things that define it. And there's some really good, uh, simple to read um, sort of publications pushed out by an organization called Plant Life, if anyone's interested, which you can sort of see what, what makes up a temperate rainforest. Uh, a lot of it is in the west of Ireland, uh, along the Welsh coast, the Pembrokeshire coast, some of it up in Scotland, uh, and then down in, uh, in Cornwall as well. And in the same way, you have a lot of it in places like British Columbia, uh, and along the uh, the eastern seaboard of Canada and, and the United States, because it is rainforest that is in the temperate zone, and Atlantic rainforest is really along the borders of, of the Atlantic. Um, what designates it is often its age. 
So right. um, it needs to be at least 400 years old of, of woodland that hasn't been cut down. And that gives you this incredible fungal growth in the soil, which takes so long to grow and establish. Um, yeah. The species mix is very important. And we're a very oak dominant area here. So our temperate rainforest is about 80% oak, a mixture of sessile or Celtic oak and, and pedunculate or, or English oak. You do need to have an element of water, obviously, a high rainfall, yeah. but also rivers running through it. So we have a beautiful river, the Badalda, which is Cornish for sweet water that runs through the middle of our rainforest and helps to to feed all of the plants and and, uh, and the, the fauna within it. Um, and then you get this whole mixture of the, the bryophytes and the epiphytes, the, the species that live on the trees, mosses, liverworts, um, yeah. fungus, lichens, things like that, which create this rainforest habitat, which is, is each of the trees isn't a standalone organism like you'll have in newer growth woodland. They are communities. So oak trees can have up to 600 different species living on them at once. And in a temperate rainforest, you'll really see that. Our oak trees have hundreds of species living on them uh, and they are festooned with a riot of life. And have you done a uh, sort of count of the species there? Have some of this uh, part of the university have worked out how many species are in the forest? I mean, we don't have a, I don't think we'd ever have a final count. I mean, it's yeah. it's, um, it's a huge number because you get out of the microorganism level and uh, and it's, um, you know, the bigger the number, the better. But uh, yeah. especially when they're living in equilibrium. I mean, we have a lot of surveys that have been done here. I, I, I as a layperson, come at it and go, brilliant, I want to do a species survey and I want to know exactly <laughs> of everything we have. Yeah. And you get your mycologist in and your lichenologist and your, you know, your entomologist and each of them is focused on a very, very niche area. And already yeah. with each of those areas, there are hundreds, if not thousands of species that are found within our woods. And what's the rarest thing that's been found there so far? Well, that's the thing. I, one of the things I love is when scientists come in and they get incredibly excited about things which to the to, to, to someone who doesn't come from a scientific background might seem rather mm. um, un, less interesting. And I had this a couple of years ago when some uh, fern experts came. I don't know the technical term for a fern expert, but some fern experts came in and they spent three days um, scouring through the woods for all the different fern species and they found dozens of fern species they were very excited and then they came back to the house and it was in November so it was I think it was November 2019 so it was um, it was pretty horrible weather and they came out to the house and were so excited about this fern they'd found that the Tunbridge filmy fern which uh, they, yeah. they dragged me back down to the woods to come and see this rare specimen and I rather hoped it would be sort of eight foot tall and bright purple and carnivorous and oh yeah I was hoping there'd be something that really excited me about this fern and of course it was the the smallest and least impressive looking fern but very very rare and really exciting to have it here uh there's also been a a species Brilliant. of a species of mayfly which is a um a British first to be seen here but is native to to this type of temperate environment so we've we've got some really exciting creatures which might not always seem the most exciting but but they are uh, and the more you learn, the more that people get excited about things that might not look exciting, that I think the more exciting that is. And then we have things like the beavers and and creatures which are a little bit easier to connect with. And the beavers, have you reintroduced that? I guess so, because there was none left. We brought in a couple. Um, so because of COVID, normally you'd always want to release beavers as a mating pair because they mate for life. But mm -hmm. uh, because of COVID, the trapping had to stop and we were only able to take rescue beavers that had been uh, fished out of hydroelectric schemes in Scotland. So our, our female Sigourney was released in July 2020 um, into yeah. an enclosure that we built for her, about a five acre enclosure. Uh, she was followed in September that year by her, her, her betrothed, Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, a healthy yeah. male. Brilliant and then, names. Uh, 
initially they didn't they didn't speak to each other they lived at separate ends of the enclosure they built their own dam systems they started to live very independently and and there was a worry often in this situation actually you could you could have a, a, an incident where the female might kill the male because he's interfering with her habitat yeah. but then in in about january february of um 2021 they started to interact and we got video footage of them together and then in may um we had the first two beaver kits born on Bobbin Moor in over 400 years who are both wow. healthy living in the enclosure um christened bv nicks and bv wonder and they are um, brilliant they're, they're having <laughs> wonderful time so we've now got a family of four beavers which is which is terrific and what an amazing lockdown romance story it could have it, gone, been, it could have gone horribly wrong oh and it's had its ups and its downs they haven't always got along but i'm i'm following them closely i'm almost like their marriage counselor <laughs> do, you, do you sometimes worry that they might have had a bust up or is it just a case of creating them the sort of a happy environment to live in and they get on with it they're pretty robust i mean they they yeah. you know, beavers belong on every river in europe and uh, any river that doesn't have beavers on it cannot actually be classified as as truly healthy they are a fundamental part of the ecosystem that they that they have evolved within so and they're very territorial so beavers will live for about 20 years and they'll live on the same stretch of river, sort of 400 meters or so, for their entire life. So they, um, they're, they're, it's amazing watching them build their habitat and and take ownership of it. And I'd really never thought about it until I watched the BBC clip, I think, with you on talking about the beavers. And and you you're so ingrained around the fact that beavers chop down trees and beavers block at watercourses. But actually, it's really obvious that they're crucial for uh, the management of the water system when they're starting to put these little dams in and is 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 that can we work with beavers and still have sort of healthy rivers uh, well of course it was c.s lewis in in narnia who has mr and mrs beaver um, eating fish and drinking beer which i think was one of the yeah. greatest services he's ever done to beaver <laughs> if they did either of those things they'd immediately die um they are the original vegan they only eat wood but yeah, as, as you say, they a lot of people worry that beavers will destroy woodland. But if they did that, they couldn't be a territorial species. They would have to be itinerant. They'd have to move from place to place. The fact that yeah. they will live for multiple generations on the same stretch of river shows that they are sustainable foresters, far better than we are. One of the problems, and it, and it is a problem that's happened in, in Perthshire up in Scotland, where they have a great many beavers, is that we've created a, a sort of an anthropocentric landscape where we think that the the human impacts we've had on the land are the way the land is meant to be. We've drained floodplains and turned them into arable land. We've dug out culverts and ditches, and we then think this is how we want nature to be. And and it often isn't very um, healthy when we've done that to, to the natural world. Beavers, mm. they don't come in with an agenda. They just come in and make it how it was designed to be, make it how it evolved to be. So I think there is a way that humans can live with beavers. But we have to we have to be prepared to compromise a little bit on how we think the natural world should be. And that's very easy for me to say. Very hard for a farmer who has low lying land that beavers are flooding. There is also the factor that any animal that's reintroduced, even if it's totally native, unless all of these species that lived around it within its ecosystem are there, there's going to be an unnatural yeah. impact. So traditionally, beavers would have been hunted by wolves and bear and lynx. We don't have any of those in the UK. So when we bring beavers in, we have to continue to be the wolf, the bear and the lynx until one yeah. day in the distant future when we have those species back here. So um, and, and I'm not necessarily propo proposing that we should. But um, 
so yeah, there has to be a management plan. And, yeah. and, and it's this concept of rewilding, whereas you just sort of throw open the gates and, and let things happen. It, it needs to be a managed rewilding process because, as you say, the, food, the, the entire food system isn't there anymore. So it's really interesting. It's in the same way that we need to cull deer now because otherwise we would just become overrun and it's unhealthy for them. Well, there are, there are six species of deer in the UK, of which two are native and four of them have been introduced for various reasons, often for food or because they look pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, and, and those non-native deer create huge damage to the ecosystem. But even the native species, so roe deer, which is a native species to the UK, the Forestry Commission did a report a few years ago that the carrying capacity of the mainland of, of the United Kingdom is about 350,000 roe deer. So with that number, woodland would be able yeah. to, self, to, to naturally regenerate uh, and the deer would be in equilibrium. Because we've taken out all of their predators and we've created an all-you-can-eat buffet of arable land for them, um, we now have somewhere over a million roe deer roaming the woods yeah. of the which means that we won't get any oak regrowth. And so the narrative that in order to rewild, all we need to do is sit in our hands and let nature take over. Unfortunately, if, if, if I were to do that here, I'd get a lot of roe deer, a lot of rhododendron, a lot of Himalayan balsam, a lot of rabbits and a lot of gray squirrels. And none of those apart from the roe deer are native and even the roe deer need, it needs to be managed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we went uh, on holiday to Allerdale, right to the north of Scotland. And, um, I can't remember who's doing the rewilding there, but it's panting the Caledonian oaks up there, yeah. uh, which are very slow growing. And the first thing they needed to do was to build a enormous, um, I think it's a sort of 20 kilometer deer fence around it, and they just have to keep the deer out. And I think that was, was that the person who also wanted to uh, introduce wolves, I think? Yeah, so, to, so uh, Paul Lister, who who owns Aladad, who's right. a great, a great um, sort of champion of the rewilding um, movement. And he, yeah, he's campaigning for wolves. And and it's one of those funny issues because every mainland European country from Romania to Portugal has wolf packs roaming across it now. And and we don't see reports every day of little children in red cloaks being taken in the woods by it. And yet that's what every nursery story and, and children's book, the, the wolf is always the bad guy. We won't get wolves back in the UK naturally because we live on an island. Uh, and the PR campaign, I think, for bringing them across in a boat is is fraught with difficulties. But I think that any natural environment that doesn't have apex predators is always going to be slightly poorer than it might be. And so that's why at Kabila we're we're looking very closely at the opportunities around uh, wildcats and lynx because the yep. I, I haven't yet come across any children's stories where the lynx is the bad guy. And, and that again is a species which will manage roe deer populations, manage other um, small mammal and rodent populations. Um, and and will never really interfere with humans and won't really interfere with livestock either, but will yeah. create that landscape of fear, which was made so famous by the Yellowstone Park reintroduction of wolves, which is so important to the natural ebb and flow of animals within their natural world. And so on the on the sort of entire farm, the restoration project, where are you on the spectrum i'll give two examples of i was listening to a norfolk farmer on the radio the other day who said for the first time in his lifetime he was going to plow up all of the boundaries around the field the biodiversity boundaries and and farm right up to the hedges because wheat prices are high at the moment and he could do that and he said you know my priority is to grow food so we've got to move in that direction now out of europe to the sort of um, james rebanks english pastoral view of farming where he has this sort of dichotomy between nature isn't nature it's been created by men in the and humans in the lake district and are you where on that spectrum are you if that is a if that's a helpful sort of extreme views i think 
I mean, I, I, obviously, it's a, it, that's an easy, um, a good comparison, that spectrum. And But I think that all all of the farming community need to be in it together. I would mm. love nothing more than to have a pint with James Rebanks and chat through what he's doing, because I think it, not only does he write in the most beautiful way possible, but he is a, a, an incredible spokesperson for this um, the, the amazing things that he's doing. But at the same time, you can't fault the farmer who is following their business model. And I, I think that it's really interesting what's happening with the subsidy system at the moment, because the common agricultural policy, the single farm payment system, which has underpinned so much of farming for the last 60 years, is nearly entirely focused upon food production. So it's about the number of animals on the land or the amount of tonnage of food coming off that land. And that's what's being incentivized and rewarded. Whereas the new system that's being brought in, the ELM system, environmental land management schemes, is all about environmental benefit. And actually, you know, plowing up the edge, right to the edge of fields to plant more wheat is producing more food, but environmentally it's, it's damaging the soil and it's damaging the natural world. So hopefully the way the government is taking it is the new system will help that Norfolk farmer and every farmer to see the financial benefit to them in protecting and assisting the natural world. Um, so I hope I hope that there isn't a spectrum and that we're all in the same melting pot together. We're all in the same thing. I think everyone's generally moving in that direction. Yeah, and there are different market factors on this. The reality is James Rebank's farm, which is an Upland Hill farm and is similar in, in size and, and topography to where we are. Um, the story that he tells is is so true to the story of Kabila. When my father started farming here in 1960, they had a dairy herd, uh, a beef herd, pigs, sheep, uh, laying hens. They did oats, wheat, barley, flat pole cabbages and set aside. Yeah. Farms of this size in this kind of part of the country just don't do that anymore. They do one single species, maybe two, maybe a bit of beef and a bit of sheep. Um, they've all become either mono or biculture. And we need to go back to a more diversified system so that farming doesn't damage the natural world. But that will only happen if it's supported by government policy. Absolutely. And I think that is absolutely key key to it all so moving on to uh the sort of set the, the another pillar is that is the retreat side of things so wim hof you mentioned um which is the i think he is he the guy that likes to jump in lots of cold water He's the ice man yeah the ice man uh, the ice man excellent has wim been up to um take a course of bathing in uh wintry cornish lakes oh my dream would be to lure wim here um there is actually an amazing uh guy down here in cornwall he's the only wim hof trained um, Wim Hof instructor in Cornwall, um, right. a mate called Sam Boot, who who we're doing some work with and is is incredible. Um, and I've I've done a little bit of work with him on Wim Hof, a few of, uh, one of his workshops, and and it is the most incredible experience. And I, and I think an, an area which is slightly underexplored at the moment in the wellness industry is a lot of it is is very focused on um, incredible things, yoga, wellness, sound healing, all of which we do here. But but I've certainly noticed that the majority of our the people who come to us, it, it tends to mainly be be women because they, this, yeah. this industry uh, tends to speak to them more and it, it, it's usually been marketed more um, at, in that space. And I think that things like Wim Hof, there's a huge mental health problem with, with men. Um, and actually the, the rates of suicide, the rates of depression are often higher in men than they are in women. And I, I think that it would be really nice to start to build and something we're looking to do at Kabila this year is start to build more retreats that are focused on the more masculine space where there is such a need and i think wim hof is a is a key element of that because and i, I hope i'm not being too um, gender stereotyping here but men tend to be a bit more activities 
focused in the way that they like to do things. Um, and Wim Hof is a wonderful way of bringing meditation, spirituality, wellness with a scientific underpinning and doing it in a way which is where you're, you're sort of doing something at the same time. So I think for more of that male stereotypical personality type, it's, it's quite appealing. And he's done a huge amount of science on his particular techniques and um, yeah. what we need. I, I need to get him on the podcast as well, and then he can he can talk talk to us about it as, as well. But in terms of some of the science that you're looking at, and I'm not sure, maybe Wim Hof could be seen as an ecosystem service. But I think one of the things that you're doing, which is really interesting, is trying to understand. I think it uh, originates out of Japan, or the Japanese are very uh, big on it. This idea of which I would call an ecosystem service is the idea of bathing in the forest yeah. and forest bathing. Can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and and where you've got to with the science of it? Well, I, I caveat first that that, that I am I, I sit at the feet of the scientists who come here to study it. Some incredible visionary um, professors and and researchers, uh, and and I I glean what I can, but I am not professionally in any way qualified to talk about it but i'm just on this podcast you're the most uh, qualified <laughs> person <laughs> well so uh, yeah what, what we're what we're learning increasingly yeah there's, there's the anecdotal background that we all know that spending time in a in a wood or in a beautiful park feels better spiritually and for our souls than spending time in a busy high street um, i think everybody feels that way we tend to be drawn that way uh, and now that we're starting to get the science behind the why of that so so all trees have leaves and all leaves are there for the purpose of photosynthesis. And photosynthesis happens from these stomata, these little um, holes in the bottom of leaves, which effectively work as pumps. So leaves, they suck in CO2 and they pump out oxygen, the lungs of the planet. This is what we're always being told. But they don't pump out this oxygen as just pure oxygen. It's laced with certain aerosols, which are called terpenes and phytoncides. And these chemicals, these uh, volatile organic chemicals, they're called all do different things. So some of the, and the trees have a purpose for doing it. It's some of them, they, uh, they keep away um, pests and they are, they are unpalatable to the kind of insects that might eat that tree. Some of them attract uh, insects and birds for um, fertilization purposes uh, and, and some perform other functions as well. It's amazing what, uh, what we're learning about the way trees communicate, but also the things that they secrete and, uh, and pump out into the world. And each of these these, these chemicals, or well, some of them, have an, an impact on human physiology as well. Um, and so starting to study that, the, the thing that I love and get very excited about is the idea that we might get to a point, the NHS has begun socially prescribing. So now if you or I were to go to our, our GP in certain areas and say, um, I'm starting to feel anxious or depressed, yeah. or physical ailments as well, you're starting to show the symptoms of type 2 diabetes or um you know, or, or, or certain other things, then GPs are now empowered to prescribe spending time in nature. Now, imagine wow. in, if in 10, 20, 30 years time, we could start yeah. to actually um, segment that a little bit more to say, oh, type 2 diabetes. Well, we know that the type of volatile organic chemicals that are secreted by oak trees is really helpful with, uh, with diabetes. So you should spend time in ancient oak woodland and um, and I know oh, anxiety. Well, we know actually that Scotch pine secretes chemicals which are really good for if you're suffering with anxiety. They're very calming. So you should spend time in in a native pine forest. And I I don't think that we're a million miles away from being able to be a little bit more directed in nature prescribing and actually have the science behind it to start to say we can see that when people spend time in nature, their um, cortisol levels reduce their heart rate reduces, their blood pressure reduces. And these impacts, even after only spending two hours in nature, 
are still shown in people's physiology up to two weeks later. So these are long lasting impacts that are really beneficial yeah. to our physical and as a result, our mental health. And, and at Kabila, we're trying to be a part of this huge global study that, that's, um, that's being, being undertaken by many research institutes into understanding that a bit better and, and helping people as a result. And that's clearly massively beneficial for the planet as well as the people, because if we have more nature put on prescription, social prescriptions for people who are feeling unwell, we're going to need more nature and protected nature and types of forestry grown. So it's a really nice sort of feedback loop there. I, I think it's actually a, it's not just a feedback loop, but it's a self-improving one because um, so the government said it was it's going to plant 30 million trees a year by 2030. Mm. Uh, and, and every other political party, I think, had even grander plans of the number of trees they would plan to plant. And of course, the next question is, what kind of trees and where and yeah. and with what kind of management plan in place? And I, I mean, I would say this, but because we have ancient oak woodland here, I think that ancient oak woodland is something that's really aspirational because of what happens with the mycelium and the fungal network underneath the soil. And so my big hypothesis is that if we can demonstrate that ancient oak woodland or you know, the temperate rainforest makeup of woodland yeah. is the best for human health, then that should incentivize the policymakers who are trying to actually get people to plant these 30 million trees a year, not just to say, oh, just, just chuck up anything, plant eucalyptus if you like, like plant yeah. six spruce, but to say, no, 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 it needs to be native. It needs to be um, a mixture which will create that incredibly vibrant ecosystem. And it needs to be the makeup of trees planted for the amount of time to not just benefit the natural world, but also to benefit the people spending time within it. But isn't it too late? Because I think there's a saying that says the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. But the second best time is now. <laughs> Touche. Very good. And I, 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 before lockdown, I used to bring members of the team out into nature for a walk and they all found absolutely fantastic um, after it. it was either the walk or the pub lunch, I don't know which, but they all had a, a great time. But then there was some people that in some ways there were, I don't know for certain, but they sort of, they never signed up and maybe they were scared to come out into nature. And we still keep building big entertainment complexes and shopping centers out of concrete and do you think we're perhaps going to stratify society by the people who can see the benefits of nature and are going to go into it and get better or feel better and then people who have been taken out of nature for so long and been born into cities and brought up in cities that there's this fear factor of nature i i, I could not agree more and i think it all comes down to education and it's i mean i i've I've just come in this morning. I took um, a group of six and seven year olds through the woods and was explaining to them what a temperate rainforest was. And and all of these and we've had children here who are doing their GCSEs and ones that are yeah. younger and, and at slightly older levels. And one of the nice things to see is that concepts like rewilding and certainly concepts like climate change are now um, very much embedded in the syllabuses that they're studying at school. And hopefully that will help to to remove some of the um the, the, the stigma that exists around it. And we saw it here when we first opened some of the groups that came here, I'd always say to them, I, I can take you on a tour of the, the rainforest if you'd like. And one mm. or two, actually, we're, we're OK and um, we'll just figure it out for ourselves. And then they never did. They never went into the wood because just like all the children's stories have wolves as the bad guys. Also, all the bad stuff tends to happen in a forest. Hansel and Gretel, yeah. you know, all of Grimm's fairy tales, they all happen in woodland. Nothing bad ever happens in a town or in a, a, a bit of open parkland. It's always in the dark of the woods. So we have to remove the, na the natural fear that we have. At the same time, 
you know, we have a term, uh, the zoologists have a term in for animals that start to demonstrate the symptoms of mental health um, problems when they're kept in captivity, which is zoonosis. When we take animals that come from the wild and we lock them away in small enclosures and they start to behave as though they have depression, anxiety, ADHD, PTSD, we call it zoonosis. We don't do that for humans. And yet we are just one other wild animal that is now yeah. being locked away in small enclosures that we call, you know, flats and apartments in cities. Um, so I think I think that it doesn't matter if someone's grown up in a city and it doesn't matter if they've never been in nature. I think once we're back in it, we can all at some atavistic level find that connection to the natural world. And I think we do. I mean, I definitely get zoonosis by about lunchtime. So I think, yeah. I think we got I think we call it cabin fever, don't we? But some people some people get it and some people don't. So I think that's it. I'm going to start. I'm going to go all scientific and call it zoonosis now. It's fantastic. And then the third sort of pillar of what you're doing at Camilla, the, in summary, that you've got these five studies going on. What are those? And are they are universities and research establishments coming to you now to find out what's going on? Or have you had to push quite hard and say, look, what's happening here? You need to come and look here. I think there's been a bit of push and a bit of pull. I've been really keen to bring people in because we want to get this this scientific underpinning that supports what we're doing. I, I don't want what we're doing to be seen as as something that's just uh, impulse based or that's kind of part of the sort of the hippie movement because it really isn't. What we're doing is is based around fact and and science and and benefiting both the natural world and and human health and the rural community, an area which has been so hard hit since farming became so efficiency focused and jobs were cut so much. And that's why the, the the organizations we partner with range from everything from the Eden Project, which is the most incredible organization. And they have Eden Project Learning, where they do a restoration ecology degree and a master's. And we have lots of their students who end up coming and working here um, through to Dutchy College. We're down here in Cornwall, where they're, they're an agricultural college that is teaching the next generation of of young farmers and land managers. And so to be able to bring people in from the ecological side, people in from the farming community, we partner with Falmouth on a photography, their, their natural photography um, course. So people from more yeah. of a, the arts and the media world to be to give them open access to a temperate rainforest is a, a wonderful way of helping everybody to see new ways of farming, new ways of, of viewing ecosystem management, uh, and also new ways of capturing the, the, the natural world to be able to share with others. And this 400-year-old temperate rainforest, you've got 50 years of it, hopefully a little bit longer. So when it's 450 years old and it'll be going strong, what's it going to say about Merlin? Well, we, um, just as, a, just as a, a minor correction on that, so you have to be at least 400 years old to be classified as temperate rainforest. Oh. We recently had a peat core sample taken in ours that um, showed that our, our rainforest is at least 3,000 uh, 629 years old so um it, it's 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 already a, a very mature environment that was um, a, a, a very generous minor correction i was only out by three three thousand two hundred and twenty nine years <laughs> yeah so, so so it's already got um got many generations of human life and and a, and a yeah. three and a half generations of oak life because oak will live for a thousand years um so it's already a very mature environment uh, Lizzie and I have launched something we, that, that's called the Thousand Year Project, because the reality is you said the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, and it's true. But when you plant things like oak trees, you never plant them with the aspiration of ever actually seeing them as a mature tree. Oak trees yeah. take 300 years to grow, 300 years to live, and then 300 years to die. So we are planting trees for future generations. And our aspiration here is to triple the size of the temperate rainforest we have. So we're planting up 200 acres of farmland to become temperate rainforest. I will never see that. 
So if in 50 or 60 years, when, when my time to, to, to join the trees and, and, and sink back into the soil comes, for me, my legacy will be that, that, that the, next, the next people who come to manage it are continuing that campaign for the thousand year project to make sure that the temperate rainforest does triple in size, reestablish and grow in health and vitality. That's amazing. So I think they'd be pretty happy when uh, you go to say that you they'd have a lot more friends, the oak trees with them. And what's coming up you're most excited about, Merlin? At the moment, well, so the things I'm most excited about are the planting project. We're planting 100,000 trees over the next two years, um, and we desperately need volunteers to come and help and uh, and to come and be a part of that journey. And our next um, part of our species reintroduction program is uh, 2022 is going to be the year of the wildcat, uh, which should never be called a wildcat. So I'm, we're doing a rebranding pro- process. If if we want to call them wildcats, they should be wild badgers, wild foxes and wild squirrels. Anything non-domesticated is wild. These are woodland yeah. cats, the Eurasian woodland cat, which is going to be a wonderful addition to the valleys here. Um, and the yeah. pine martin as well, which we should have. So the pine martin, the wildcat and uh, and our planting projects are the, the things I'm most excited about on the horizon. Fantastic. And the woodland cat, will you be bringing cats to the area or will you do things to try and introduce them? So we still have a, a native population of wild cats or woodland cats. Thank you for uh, for already adopting the rebranded version uh, up in Scotland. Uh, but the, the yeah. numbers are getting quite small. So uh, we, right. we sit on the, the English um, wildcat reintroduction steering group, which is looking at how we can bring wildcats back to to the UK and there's a likelihood they might be from German stock where there is a much healthier population but it'd be nice to use some UK natives and and there's that Scottish population that we're looking at quite closely as well. This is all just brilliant man there's so much going on and there's quite a lot for listeners to absorb if you were going to ask people to do just one thing to tackle climate change from all of your knowledge at Cabilla and what you're doing there what would that one thing be? I don't want to sound um, too uh, sort of old fashioned about this, but I think that the best things we can do at the moment, aside from people getting out there and volunteering, people actually getting their hands in the dirt, planting trees and getting going to your local wildlife trust and your local um, any, any places that are involved in rewilding and asking to volunteer and getting involved. Uh, the other best thing that people can do, which I think everyone should do, because it's not just good for nature, but it's good for us and good for our mental health and our physical health at a time that's so important. Anyone who's come out of COVID and not realized how much we need the natural world hasn't had the same lockdown that I think you and I have probably had. Uh, and the, uh, the next best thing we can all do is write to your MP. You know, the more we write, if, if, a, if a member of parliament gets one letter, they can reply to it and ignore it. They get 50, they start to print their ears up. They get 500 and they realize that if they don't listen to the, this group of people, they're going to lose their seat. They will start doing things. And if we can all write to our MPs and tell them nature is important, species reintroductions are important, creating equilibrium in our ecosystems are important, and opening up the countryside for everybody to be able to come and, and enjoy it and benefit from it is important, then if we can get 650 politicians sitting at Westminster passing laws on that, then it will actually start to happen. Brilliant. I couldn't agree more. We've actually got an episode on influencing politicians, um, which is with an organisation called The Commitment, who are trying to uh, do just that by focusing on marginal seats. So have a listen to that. It's a great episode. So Merlin, it's been super interesting. And thank you for taking time out between tidying up after the storm. Eunice, is that the right one it was? I've lost it. I always had Eunice, Franklin and Gladys here. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you you again, out out of the storms. We have a little thing on the podcast where uh, we ask guests to leave something in the first mile planet saver hall of fame. 
which we're going to have a, a little roll call of the Hall of Fame at some point in the future. What would you leave in the uh, Hall of Fame? I would leave a tiny little Celtic oak sapling, so a sessile oak sapling, about six inches high. It's just had its first leaf come out, just sprouting out of its acorn, because I know that will be there in a thousand years' time as a great big tree, so it's going to outlast most of the other things in there, which would be nice. Perfect. An ideal addition. Merlin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, before you go, can you tell listeners where they can find you, your website, social media, whatever you want to share? Uh, we'd love for people to follow us on Instagram, uh, where we, we post a lot of images of what we're doing. Gloria, our Cornish black pig, is currently pregnant, so we'll soon be having pictures of a whole fleet of little piglets up there. So please follow us, Kabila Cornwall, on Instagram. And uh, our website is www.kabilacornwall.com. Um, where you can see everything that we're doing and everything that we're we're talking about and all of our plans and developments for the future. And come and get involved as a volunteer. Fantastic. Merlin, it's been absolutely brilliant to have you as a guest and really, really very interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce. I'm Bruce Bradley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet incredible people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero five zero.